Hello again. This is Bob, and this is our second podcast on Revelation. The first one, we just did a broad introduction to the book and talked about themes and outline and that kind of thing. Today, we're going to go through the book of Revelation through uh, chapter 16. And again, this is so people can catch up and be prepared for our fall Bible study, which is going to be finishing up Revelation, uh, starting at chapter 17. So we're just going to go straight through it. Uh, And again, you might want to have your Bible out to be able to stop and read the relevant passages as we go, and we're just going to go chapter by chapter. So in the immortal words of Matt Cabot, let's dig in. Chapter 1 sets the stage for the rest of Revelation. In the previous podcast, we spoke about some of the prologue, verses 1 through 3. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believers are to read aloud, listen to, and keep all that is written here. Then the chapter moves into a general epistle framework. There is the sender, John, and the recipients, the seven churches, a triune blessing, and a benediction. The language is beautiful and lavish, but the structure is common, typical for for that era and culture. Then in verse 9, John begins his letter by explaining his situation. He was exiled on Patmos, an island off the coast of Western Asia Minor, We know that this Patmos was used by the authorities to exile people. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, what does that mean? Well, at a minimum, it was Sunday and he was worshiping. Being in the Spirit might also mean he was experiencing a deeper, richer fellowship with God than was common, or he was having an ecstatic experience, or it was a common experience for him, and this was a special charisma in the early church. Regardless, John was having an intense spiritual experience, and it's important for us to realize it was during worship for him. Many of the greatest experiences and visions of the people in the Bible happened during worship, like Pentecost, like Isaiah's vision of God's throne room, like Paul's call to mission at Antioch, and like John's vision here. John is worshiping hard and he hears a voice telling him to write what he sees in a book to these seven churches. John turns and looks. Now, there's often a movement from hearing to seeing in Revelation. He turns and looks, and what he sees is an astonishing individual, with descriptions taken from various parts of the Old Testament, especially the prophet Daniel. This son of man was standing among lampstands. Now, where where else do we come across lampstands? in the holy place of the tabernacle and then temple. So here, the Son of Man is described as a priest in the heavenly temple. He identifies himself as Jesus, not by saying his name, but by saying he's the first and the last. He died, but now lives. He again commands John to write what he sees. And he helpfully explains that the lampstands are the seven churches and the stars are the angels of the seven churches. He will immediately begin addressing each church individually, but first, who or what are are the angels to the seven churches, of the seven churches, the stars in Jesus' hand? There are a number of possibilities. Jesus addresses the angel of each church in chapters 2 and 3. Do churches have heavenly beings assigned to them? Perhaps, but some of these angels are called to repent and were tolerating all kinds of wickedness. That doesn't sound like an angel. There are lots of angels in Revelation. None are described as stars in Jesus' hand. But in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, priests are called angels, messengers, God's messengers. 
it's possible Jesus is addressing the pastor of each church. Regardless, in each letter, Jesus appears to be speaking to the whole church, not just its pastor or leader or heavenly being guardian. So we don't have to perfectly solve this question. I'm assuming it's the pastor. But here's something comforting. Jesus walks among the lampstands and holds the stars in his hand, meaning he walks among the churches and the pastors are in his hand. That's comforting. And these are seven churches, which therefore stand for all churches everywhere. Jesus walks among his people and holds their shepherds in his hand. That's good. Two more things to note about chapter 1. First, the Greek root martyr appears four times. Our English words testimony and witness both translate from the root martyr. In verse 5, Jesus called the, is called the faithful witness. In verse 9, John writes that he was on Patmos on account of the testimony of Jesus. But the prologue tells us that the book of Revelation itself is a faithful testimony. Verse 2, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Faithfully witnessing and testifying is the primary action towards the world the church is called to do, called to take in Revelation. Witnessing and testifying will come up at key moments. Testifying and witnessing, even to the point of death, what we now consider being a martyr, is what Revelation is all about. Second point, verse 7, is a great example of the challenge and delight of Revelation. It reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. We have two Old Testament prophecies referenced here. Coming with the clouds is from Daniel 7, the son of man. The second one, wailing on account of the one they pierced, comes from Zechariah 12. And what's fascinating about this Zechariah prophecy is that that passage suggests repentance. There, in Zechariah, the house of David and Judah will receive mercy and grace and mourn over the one they pierced. In fact, the word here in chapter 1, wail, could be translated mourn. So, in this Revelation passage, are all nations wailing over Jesus coming in judgment, or are they mourning repentantly because they had persecuted him but now receive him? Revelation seems to say it's both. We have various scenes where it appears almost the whole world hates Jesus and makes war on him, and other scenes where almost the whole world responds to Jesus and repents. At the end, the kings and wealth of the nations stream into the New Jerusalem. But from chapters 19 and 20, you might get the sense that they were already killed. Revelation uses extreme language. We don't have to solve for that. Sometimes it feels like the whole world is against Jesus. Sometimes it might look like the whole world is coming around to Jesus. Two of the things Revelation says to us is, while we can hope that there will be a massive ingathering of people, our role in making that happen is to faithfully repent and faithfully witness to Jesus, even in the face of deadly persecution, right? We, we hope in mass repentance, and yet we still are able and willing to witness and testify in the face of persecution and the whole world being against Jesus. And that's something we see here in these seven letters to the churches, chapters 2 and 3. 
Seven letters to seven churches in Western Asia Minor. The order of the letters seemed to be geographic, starting at Ephesus and moving in a clockwise motion. The letters have the same outline, an introduction of who Jesus is, what he knows is going on in the church, a rebuke, usually, an affirmation, usually, and then a promise-slash-reward for those who persevere. The first thing to notice is that the way Jesus describes himself at the beginning of each letter is usually drawn from his description in chapter 1. For example, in the letter to Sardis, he says, "...the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars." Additionally, the reward that Jesus promises at the end of each letter is drawn from the scenes at the end of Revelation. For example, to Ephesus, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life has scarcely come up since Genesis 3, but it plays a prominent role in chapter 22 of Revelation. The point to make is that each letter contains a reference to the opening chapter and the closing chapters suggesting that the whole book of Revelation is for these recipients, and the letters play an integral part in the whole book. They cannot be excised out or compartmentalized. They are not add-ons to an apocalyptic vision. Again, this helps us with interpretation. What is said to the churches sets up the rest of the book. What is said to the churches is said to all Christians everywhere, at every time. Each letter also suggests an intimate knowledge of the specific church and a general knowledge of the city and its history. For example, again, in the letter to Sardis, Jesus talks about coming like a thief at an unknown time. This is partly referencing Sardis's history as a supposedly impregnable fortress, only to be thwarted on two different occasions by a handful of people scaling its sheer cliffs and taking it by surprise. Okay, seven churches— Two are compromising with the surrounding culture, Pergamum and Thyatira. Two are prosperous but being complacent, Sardis and Laodicea. Two are marginalized and being faithful, Smyrna and Philadelphia. One is theologically orthodox but lacking love, all head and no heart, perhaps, Ephesus. Now, this isn't a terrible representation of the church throughout history. Some churches get too involved with the surrounding culture and captured by it. Some don't love the surrounding culture enough. Some look alive but are dead. Some that look weak are really strong. Some are not being persecuted, some are. Some are more elite, some are more marginalized. This is rich soil for sermons, and churches throughout the ages have preached on these letters. Most of us can find our church and even our own type of Christian walk characterized here. These are the commands to the churches in order. These are just the direct commands from Jesus. Remember, repent. Do the works you did at first. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. Repent. Hold fast what you have until I come. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember. Keep it. Repent. Hold fast to what you have. Be zealous and repent. Key commands seem to be repent and hold fast in the face of powerlessness or coming persecution. It gives one the feeling of being on a boat and heading into a storm. Time to batten down the hatches. Tie everything down. Gird up your loins. Stop dawdling and wasting your time on lesser things. The rest of Revelation brings this feeling home. After the last letter is finished, there is an abrupt change. Chapter 4, John is taken up in the spirit to the throne room in heaven. 
Many commentators think of this as the centering vision for everything else that follows in Revelation. The rest of history is being written and driven from the presence of God. It's this amazing, breathtaking scene of worship. God is on a throne, and the only way John describes him is by colors and gems. The throne is over a glassy sea, suggesting it is above the firmament or sky. That, along with peals of thunder and lightning, bring to mind the Theophanies on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20-24. through There are 24 elders with crowns around the throne, and we aren't sure who these elders are. They have power since they have crowns. They are the heavenly court. They are worshipers. There's 24 of them likely because there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament and 12 apostles in the New, or because each course of priests in the temple had uh, 24 priests allotted to them. There are four living creatures that represent animal and human realms, and there are all kinds of ways to understand their symbolism. Whether they represent different aspects of creation or different character traits, we don't know. But they have some resemblance to the creatures Ezekiel saw in his vision with eyes all around, as well as the cherubim Isaiah saw in his vision of the throne room, having six wings each. And everyone is worshiping. The point is, this is the true king and God to worship, not the current emperor Domitian, who demanded people refer to him as our Lord and God. Whatever is happening on earth, God is reigning in heaven and is ever worthy to be worshipped. He is eternal. He is creator of all. Then we move to chapter 5. Still in the heavenly throne room, but now there's a problem. The one on the throne has a scroll, but there's no one to open it. Now, what is the scroll? Well, from the rest of Revelation, it appears the scroll is the conclusion of history. It is the resolution of the human drama. And the reason why there would be weeping that no one was worthy to open the scroll is that that would mean history cannot move on or move forward. It would be stuck in a loop of sin and tyranny and judgment. And then Jesus arrives. John hears one of the elders exclaim that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and can open the scroll. That's what John hears. But what he sees is a lamb who was slain. This lamb takes the scroll and everyone falls down and worships and sings a new song. A new song is a victory song. And this is what they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. Remember the fourfold designation of humanity. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's Exodus 19. And they shall reign on earth. This is the narrative arc of Revelation, the unfolding of history so that the saints reign on earth. But how does the lamb conquer? By being slain, by his blood ransoming God's people. John hears this amazing title, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, right? This great warrior. But he sees a slain, bloody lamb. And this is one of the paradoxes of Revelation and really the whole Bible. Jesus is a mighty warrior, but he submits to death like a lamb. He could consume his enemies, yet he dies for them. And when he comes to war against them in chapter 19, all he does is speak and they fall. History goes nowhere without humanity being redeemed. History is not finished until humans are in their rightful spot as the image-bearing rulers of creation. 
God taking on human flesh and dying to redeem humanity is the pivot and key of history. All that follows is unlocked by the Lamb's sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. In chapter 6, then, we begin to open the seven seals of the scroll. The seals, trumpets, and bowls follow a similar pattern. Uh, There are seven of each of them, and like I said in the previous podcast, they follow a 4-2-1 pattern. So with the seals, the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, violence, famine, and death. These simply read like ancient history. Empires come, there's violence, famines from nature as well as human conflict, and then death from famine, pestilence, and war. It's the nastiness and chaos of human history. Those are the first four. Then the seals change. The fifth is a scene of the martyrs under the altar crying out for God to judge and avenge their persecutors. Why under the altar? Well, that's where the blood was spilled for the sacrifices. God tells them to wait. More of their brothers need to be killed first. That then brings us to the sixth seal, which seems to be God's answer to the martyr's prayer for justice. And this is our first glimpse of the end, the day of the Lord. And many of the images come from the Old Testament describing the day of the Lord. Darkness, sky falling, mountains being removed from their place. This is decreation, themes that will reappear in Revelation. The sixth seal is the day of the Lord, and we just get a preview of it. No one actually dies. It will get more intense as Revelation proceeds. All of humanity runs and hides and exclaims, the great day of God's wrath has come, and who can stand? And that's a great question. Who can stand? Well, chapter 7 answers that. Here we have an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, which also fits a pattern with the trumpets and bowls. There's an interlude between six and seven. So the interlude is this scene of angels about to wreak havoc on creation, land and sea and trees, but they're told to hold back until all of God's people are sealed on their foreheads. Those who are sealed will be contrasted with those who accept the mark of the beast in chapter 13 and later. One thing that's being said here is that God's sealed will make it through the times of judgment and tribulation. They're the ones who can stand. Not that they won't face persecution or even martyrdom. Remember the fifth seal of the martyrs crying out for justice. But God knows those who are his, and nothing can separate them from his love. So these are the people who will be able to stand in the day of the Lord. John hears, he doesn't see, he hears the number sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of Israel, 12,000 per tribe, except it's not every tribe. The tribe of Dan is missing, and Ephraim isn't mentioned. Joseph, his father, is mentioned in his place. Nowhere else is this order used, and it's not an order of birth or anything else we can tell. Dan and Ephraim were connected with idolatry and judges, which is perhaps why they are left out of this list. But the list and number seem to be symbolic anyway, because what John actually sees and not hears, in verse 9, he sees a great multitude no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language, the fourfold designation of all humanity. So we have the elect sealed and numbered as members of ethnic Israel, fitting in with Old Testament themes, but they really are without number. There's so many from every nation. 
Again, there's this amazing worship scene, including the four creatures and all the angels and elders. This appears to be the whole elect who come out of the great tribulation washed in the blood of the Lamb. The blessings they are promised are the blessings of the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. This looks like the end. Judgment has come on the earth. The elect are sealed and saved and gathered in heaven. But we're only on the sixth seal. We're just at the beginning of the cycles. Chapter 8 begins with the opening of the seventh seal. And rather than an ending, it's a beginning. It's just silence for half an hour. Now, why silence? Well, what we read is that an angel brings a censer with incense with the prayers of the saints. The idea is there is silence in heaven uh, in order to hear the prayers of believers. And then that same angel takes fire from the altar and hurls it onto the earth because the saints are praying for justice and deliverance. Remember the fifth seal. God hears their prayers and responds with the seven trumpets the fire from the altar cast onto the earth. Again, with the trumpets, we have a 4-2-1 pattern. The first four trumpets bring wrath and punishment onto creation, earth, sea, fresh water, and sky. Again, these are decreation scenes reminiscent from Isaiah, Joel, Exodus, and elsewhere. Those are the first four, all creation being harmed. Then there's a break, an eagle overhead announcing three woes to come, from the last three trumpet blasts. On to chapter 9. The first woe, or fifth trumpet blast, sees Satan fall from heaven. This is the first time Satan's really introduced as a character. He falls from heaven and opens up the bottomless pit, and these demonic creatures emerge, able to torment anyone not sealed in God for five months. It's not death, it's torment. And it's not permanent, it's temporary. Five months. Oh, and, and just as an example of Revelation's storytelling and language, In the first trumpet, all the green grass was burned up. But in the fifth trumpet, these demonic creatures are told not to harm the grass of the earth. So again, we cannot press this literally. So that's the first woe. The second woe, or sixth trumpet, is an army of 200 million mounted horsemen, led or personified by four angels, held back at the Euphrates River. These also appear to be demonic horses, and a third of humanity are killed by them. Then in verse 20, we read this curious remark and observation. Again, this is the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or theft. That's an important statement. Even after creation starts falling apart, even after being tortured by demonic locust scorpions, even after a demonic army kills a third of mankind, even still, people will not repent. Now, this is not new, as Pharaoh and the Egyptians faced ever greater disaster and decreation. Did they repent? No. Did Noah's floods solve humanity's sin problem? No. Acts of wrath and vengeance do not lead to repentance. This doesn't make them unjust, but the question is, what will bring repentance? What will advance the gospel? And that's the the rest of this interlude starting here in chapter 10. John now appears to be on earth, and an angel comes to him and gives him a little scroll. 
He was supposed to eat it, sweet to the mouth and bitter to the stomach, similar to the prophet Jeremiah's experience. John is told he must prophesy again to or about many more peoples and nations. There's decent debate about this little scroll. Some argue this is the real scroll uh, that was being unsealed by Jesus in heaven. The seals and trumpets were precursors. Now the real story begins. Others aren't so sure, but it is after John eats the little scroll that we see more activity and witnessing by the church, more direct conflict between the church and Satan, more characters introduced. I might say that this little scroll is the core of the big story. And it's about advancing the gospel, as John must prophesy to or about many peoples and nations. We're starting to narrow our focus here. If wrath doesn't lead to repentance, what will? Well, let's find out. Chapter 11. John is given a measuring rod to measure the temple and the holy people there, but not the outer courts, for they will be trampled by the nations. We see something important here. Measured things are holy and protected. Unmeasured things are vulnerable and defiled. This helps us understand the obsession with measuring and numbering things in various portions of Scripture, particularly Ezekiel. And we see again this principle that the elect, who are symbolically numbered at 144,000, cannot be harmed by all the trouble and tribulation that is coming. The nations will trample the holy city for 42 months, and God will grant authority to his two witnesses to prophesy for 1260 days. The important thing to note uh, is that these times are congruent and concurrent. 1260 days are 42 months, assuming a 30-day month. Three and a half years. These numbers will come up again in chapter 12 and, and also be termed a time, times, and half a time. And this is the way it was described to the prophet Daniel, the time until the end, that the fourth beast will make war on God's people. Three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months. And the point of this time period is that it is half a week of years, half of a whole era or epoch. It's a long time, but it's not forever. Most importantly, they are concurrent. The time of witnessing and prophesying is also the time of the nations trampling the courts and the beast making war on the church, as we'll see in chapters 12 through 14. All right, so verses 4 through 13 in chapter 11 focus on the two witnesses. Uh, with imagery taken from Zechariah, the two witnesses are the church, universal, right? The testimony of one witness isn't enough. You need two. The two witnesses are the church. Uh, they challenge the nations, and they have powers like Elijah and Moses. The beast arises, and we'll see more of him in a moment, and he kills them. The nations are glad, but then the witnesses rise and are raised up to heaven and glorified. There's an earthquake. And a tenth of the city falls and 7,000 die. The city is Jerusalem, but again, this is all symbolic. What's interesting is that the ratios are reversed from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, only a tenth of Jerusalem survives a judgment. And to Elijah, God says that he has reserved only 7,000 who have not kneeled to Baal. Here, the numbers are reversed. The portions are reversed, and there is far less judgment. And it says those who are left gave glory to God in heaven. God vindicated the church in the face of persecution from the beast, and much of the world sees and glorifies God. How are the nations reached? What will bring them to repentance? The faithful testimony and martyrdom of God's people, whose witness God will vindicate. That's the answer. 
Chapter 10, chapters 10 and 11 are an interlude between the final trumpets and act as a preview and introduction to the lengthier narrative of chapters 12 through 15. But first, we have to finish with the trumpets, the seventh seventh trumpet. It appears to be another description of the end. It sounds, and then John hears, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. A doxology continues, saying in part, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Again, sounds like the end. The temple in heaven is opened, the ark is seen, and there are more manifestations of theophany, like uh, during the Exodus. The trumpets and ark are seen together in in the conquest of Jericho, which is perhaps why the ark is seen here at the end of the trumpet cycle. The language uh, of celebration sounds like the end, but the ark is just appearing with more lightnings and thunders and earthquakes, which, which suggests more is to come. Chapter 12 leaves the more familiar structure of seven seals and seven trumpets and instead gives us more of a symbolic narrative. It starts with a woman who is clearly the people of God, first Israel and then the church. There is a dragon as well, clearly Satan. Satan wants to devour the woman's child, who is the Christ, because this child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, referencing Psalm 2, and, and he's quickly taken up to God's throne. Right, That's all of the Old Testament and the Gospels right there. Jesus has already ascended in this story. The woman, who is now the church, flees to the wilderness where God will care for her. You guessed it, 1,260 days, three and a half years. Uh, 1260 days is the symbolic time of the church's ministry on earth, the ministry of the two witnesses in chapter 11. Verses 7 through 9 then give us a vision of what was happening in heaven while Jesus was on earth. Michael was fighting the dragon, and the dragon is thrown down uh, upon Jesus' victory and resurrection. Verses 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. We see important things here. Again, the dragon is defeated by believers through the blood of the Lamb and their testimony, even though they were put to death. They are redeemed from their sin by Jesus' blood and are able to remain faithful to the point of death. This is how Satan is defeated by the church in Revelation, period. Faith and faithful witnessing. But this is very upsetting to the dragon Satan, and so he comes in great wrath to the earth. The dragon makes war on the woman who was put in the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. The woman is protected, so the dragon goes to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There it is again, the testimony or witness of or about Jesus. That's what this is all about. So chapter 13 details the war the dragon makes on the woman's children. Chapter 14 is the resolution to that war. Chapter 13, the dragon Satan summons the beast out of the sea. This beast, uh, who we heard about already in chapter 11, uh, this beast is a grotesque amalgamation of the four beasts Daniel saw in chapter 7 of his prophecy. 
The fourth beast in Daniel is most likely the Roman Empire, and this beast, too, would likely be identified by John's first recipients as the Roman Empire. From Asia Minor's perspective, the Roman Empire comes from the sea. It is all-powerful, and it did stagger in the year 70, the year of four emperors, and then steadied itself again. And what is asked about the beast was asked about Rome. Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast is given authority for, yep, 42 months, three and a half years. So when the bad guys are operating, the time is designated in months. When the good guys are operating, the time is designated in days. So the beast has 42 months. The witnesses and the woman have 1,260 days. Same time, designated differently. The beast is allowed to make war on the saints and even conquer them. Note that the beast has every appearance of winning. All will worship the beast except those whose names are written in the book of life. So the saints will die, but they will not apostatize. Then John sees a second beast coming up out of the land. The second beast assists the first and gets people to worship it. Now, this isn't a vision subsequent to the first beast. It's simply more detail and description of the beast's war on the church. This second beast is also called the false prophet. Here, it likely represents the local authorities who forced people to worship the Roman emperor and from time to time would economically oppress Christians. In subsequent centuries, authorities would come up with ways people had to prove they had actually prayed to Caesar or burned incense in his name. It was a way of excluding Christians from daily life and persecuting them and potentially killing them. Chapter 13 ends by talking about the mark of the beast, the mark you needed to participate economically. Again, things like this happened in the first few centuries of the church. We don't need microchips in vaccines or the European Union to fulfill this prophecy. The mark of the beast is its name, or the number of its name. It is the number of a man, 666. Now, we discussed this number in the previous podcast. It almost certainly represents Nero, the first emperor to target Christians. So, you have the Roman Empire, personified by this terrible emperor and complicit local authorities making war on the church, all empowered and inspired by the dragon Satan. This is an unholy trinity, the dragon, sea beast, and land beast. And evil is a flimsy copycat of good. In chapter 17, we'll see the beast make war on Rome itself, so we don't have to perfectly identify the beast with Rome. The beast is any totalizing, absolutizing force that demands worship. It is that overpowering reality that people feel like they simply can't fight. Who is like the beast? Who can fight it? The land beast or false prophet are those authorities or individuals or institutions who want to collaborate and go along with the beast. In this case, it's the local elites and authorities. But the point is, the beast and false prophet show up in different forms at different times. They're making war on God's people during these three and a half years of the church age, and they will make war and persecute, or they may flatter and pamper, whatever it takes to get the woman's children to stop worshiping God and start worshiping the beast. So the question for us always has to be, who are we worshiping, really? Who or what do we fear? Who or what do we hope in? Who or what is demanding and receiving our absolute allegiance? The end of chapter 13 appears to be the low point for God's people. The beast has been given authority to conquer them. And then immediately, chapter 14. Verses 1 through 5, we are given a picture of the church militant. These are all those sealed by God, the elect. They are described as a holy army. 
being virgins and blameless as a way of talking about the bride of Christ. This is who we are being made to be, washed in the blood of the Lamb. God's chosen are not defeated by the beast. They remain faithful. And so on the heels of this vision come three declarations from three angels. The first is the declaration of the gospel to all peoples. The second announces the destruction of Babylon, which we haven't heard of yet. This is an introduction of the city we will learn much more about in the coming chapters. The third gives a dire warning to all those who do accept the mark of the beast. So this is church history, what we are living through now. The beast is making war. God's people are remaining faithful. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. Judgment is proclaimed over God's opponents. And we read in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And that's a blessing for all of us who die in the Lord. While those who worship the beast have no rest, day or night, the third angel says, those who die in the Lord will rest from their labors. And that moves us to another vision of the end, this time a harvest. Verses 14 through 20 show two distinct harvests. The first is of grain. This is the harvest of the righteous, carried out by the Son of Man, likely Jesus. These are the elect. The earth was ripe, and when harvesting is spoken of in this language, it is usually talking about those being saved. But the second harvest is to judgment. This is the grape harvest. We know it's for judgment because the grapes are thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. We also know that grapes and wine are associated with judgment in this chapter because the angels speak of Babylon making the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And those who worship the beast will drink the wine of God's wrath. So, two harvests, God's family and God's enemies. The gospel gets to the ends of the earth and many are saved, not in spite of, but because of the beast's persecution. The end. Only not the end. Chapter 15 opens with angels bringing the seven last plagues and seven bowls. And even this won't be the end. But before we get to the seven bowls or the seven plagues, we have a a chorus setting it all up. God's people who conquered the beast are singing a new song of Moses beside the sea, this time a sea of glass. It's like the, the victory song after the Exodus. And their last refrain is, For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, sometimes we see all nations hating God. Other times we are told all nations will come and worship. Revelation suggests both. All right, now to the seven plagues of the seven bowls of God's wrath. We are back to our discernible 4-2-1 pattern. The bowls mirror the trumpets well. The first four are plagues on the earth, sea, fresh water, and sky, same order as the trumpets. Interestingly, no humans are said to die in these plagues. At the end of the fourth one, again we are told, no one repented and they cursed God. The fifth bowl brings darkness and people gnaw on their tongue and curse God. The sixth bowl deals with an army at the Euphrates River, just like the sixth trumpet, remember, had to deal with an army at the Euphrates River. Except here, the unholy trinity, the dragon, beast, and false prophet, gather all the kings of the nations to assemble for battle and sets up Armageddon, which won't occur until chapter 19. First, we will get the very satisfying description of Babylon's destruction. 
The seventh bowl is very similar to the sixth scroll. There's lots of decreation, day of the Lord imagery. <clears throat> Except this time, the cities of the nations fall, and Babylon is mentioned as being destroyed, which we'll get to in the next chapter. Again, though, even with this quote-unquote final plague and bowl, no one specifically dies. They just curse God. And no one repents, reinforcing the idea that judgment and wrath, while just, doesn't bring repentance. Or another way to put it, this extreme judgment and wrath is totally just, since even it doesn't bring people to reconsider their ways. That seems to be the tone Revelation has. Again, the plagues against Egypt and Exodus, which didn't bring about repentance, are instructive and are being repeated on a global scale. And that brings us to chapter 17, where we will begin on August 30th. So, to sum up, what would a first century Christian in one of these Asia Minor churches be thinking if they were reading or listening to Revelation through chapter 16? First, they would understand that history is being driven from heaven, and that the Lamb of God who was slain is the linchpin of history. But they would likely note two different stories being told. One is a story of God's wrath being poured out on the earth in ever-increasing intensity, without any repentance on humanity's part, just growing hostility from the nations of the earth. That's the seals, trumpets, and bowls. The other story is one about the beast making war on God's people and how they are safely brought through that war, primarily chapters 10 through 15. God knows all who are his, and they remain faithful to the point of death. And it is this faithful witness and testimony that has any fruitfulness in terms of the nations receiving God and worshiping him. Something else they would note. Life was not going to be comfortable. Whether experiencing the upheaval of God's wrath in the seals, trumpets, and bowls, or facing down the beast and his false prophet, they should not expect comfort and ease. They should be preparing themselves for hard tests of faith. But what Revelation models so well is, this story is interspersed with outbursts and expressions of worship. These scenes of heavenly worship instill in the listener a confidence that God's side is the right side. He wins, and his people win. But just as the lamb conquers by giving up his life and being slain, so his people conquer by being washed in the lamb's blood and being willing to give up their life for his testimony. That's the point. On to chapter 17. See you soon.